Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. Matthew, chapter 16. I'm going to read for you verses 13 through 20. We're going to, our focus, however, is going to be just Matthew 16, verse 18. But we need the context, so. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. Let's hear the word of God together. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth you shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's pray. Father, indeed, we pray again that you would give us ears to hear your word, but that you would make us not only hearers, but doers of your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We all have deep concerns for our culture. Every time we turn on the news, uh, we, we have more reason to be concerned. As Christians, we're especially concerned about the church in our culture, about Christians in our culture. We see secularism on the rise in the West. Every time there's a survey, the nuns seem to be increasing. And I mean nuns, N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S. The nuns are increasing, the people that are not religiously affiliated. And the numbers for evangelical Christians seems to continue to drop. And so we're rightly concerned about this reality because it not only, we know it affects our culture, but it affects us as a church as well. And sometimes our concern can turn into sinful worry. Um, And so today I I want to point us to the hope that we have in Christ to cure that sinful worry and trust in him instead. And so in verse 16, we're going to look at four main points. We're going to look at the builder of the church, the foundation of the church, the building itself, and the enemies of the church. We're going to look so again we're going to look at the builder of the church the foundation of the church the building of the church 
and the enemies of the church. We know, of course, clearly from this text that it is Christ who is the builder of the church. He says in verse 18, I, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. The New Testament portrays Jesus, God, first and foremost, but Jesus being God, he's, his action is involved in that as well. It portrays him as a temple builder. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, the Bible says this, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. God is building a temple. Jesus Christ, as God, is involved in this action of building a temple. Not only does the New Testament point to this, but the Old Testament types as well point to Christ being a temple builder. In the very beginning of the scriptures in Genesis we see because of God's presence in the garden, and there's other hints in the Old Testament, that the Garden of Eden should be viewed as the first temple. Adam's job, his vocation, was to build, this, build God's temple, to expand this temple so that it would be a temple to God, to his praise, all over the earth. But Adam failed in his calling and was banished from this earthly temple. However, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, will make a superior temple over the whole earth. He will not fail as Adam failed. He will build his church. He will build his temple. And he opens the gates of that temple to all who will believe in Christ. Moses also was a temple builder. He built a temporary shelter for God in the midst of the people as they wandered through the wilderness. He, Moses was the mediator of the old covenant. He built a temporary temple for the worship of the people of God. But Christ, the mediator of the new covenant, is building a permanent temple for the worship, for worship out of God's people. And as glorious as that building is, if you take the time to, to read all the instructions on how to build the temple, as glorious as that would be with all the silver and the gold and the blue and the purple, the temple that Jesus Christ will excel in beauty even of that temple. And then, of course, Solomon was a temple builder. God promised David that his offspring would build a house to, for him and establish his kingdom forever. Solomon indeed built a physical house for the Lord and extended the kingdom of Israel to its greatest extent in history. And it, I love when I'm reading through the Bible in a year and I get to that portion because I, I read about Solomon's great kingdom and it truly is extraordinary. 
But it reminds me that Christ's kingdom and the temple that he built is more extraordinary than Solomon could ever build. It's It's David's greater son, Jesus Christ, who's building a spiritual house, that is the church, for God and will extend the temple until it fills the entire earth. Jesus Christ then is building his church as an eternal temple consisting of believers in Christ from all over the world that will fill the earth. In other words, Jesus Christ will build his church. Brothers and sisters, consider who it is in this text who says, I will build my church. Simon says it. He says, he says in verse 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. This no, Jesus Christ is no demigod. He's no subordinate or submissive God to the father God in heaven. He's not somewhere between angels and God as the Jehovah's Witnesses tell us. He's not one of many mighty gods. He is the son of the living and true God, the one true and living God. He's not, God the Father isn't almighty and Jesus just a mighty God. Jesus Christ is almighty God. He is the one here saying he will build his church. No one can stand against the omnipotent hand of Jesus Christ and stop him from building his church. Consider who it is that promises us he, built, he will build his church. When you hear the surveys that say how Christianity is in decline and secularism is on the rise, when you see militant Islam spreading in the Middle East, when you see dark days coming, remember who it is that tells us, I will build my church. But also consider that this temple that we've been explaining, and I'll talk more about this in a little bit, that it consists of believers only. This isn't a temple made up of people who believe in a God somewhere out there. This isn't a temple made of people who believe in the man upstairs or a higher power. This is a temple made up of people who, who trust in the work of Jesus Christ in particular. They trust in his perfect life, his death for sinners, and his resurrection. They're trusting in the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father and will one day come to judge the quick and the dead. They entrust themselves, body and soul, to Jesus Christ. This is what a believer is. I wonder, are you believing in Jesus like that today? Where do you have a general belief in the man upstairs? There's no hope for those who refuse to embrace Jesus Christ. This promise that I will build my church shouldn't encourage you because you're not part of that building. If you don't have this kind of faith in Jesus Christ, I urge you to trust him today. He will embrace you and save you from your sins and welcome you into the household of God the church now everything that i say after this 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 is the key (laughs) 
that, that Christ is building his church. The other things that I say are important. I don't want to lose that. But if it wasn't Christ saying it, if it wasn't Christ promising to build his church, the rest of it, yeah, it's okay. But we wouldn't have the confidence. Our confidence is in Jesus Christ. Our confidence is in his promise to build his church, no matter what enemies may come against it. So first of all, and most importantly, Jesus Christ will build his church. And that is the first reason we should have hope in these dark days. Secondly, the foundation is solid and square. Look again at verse 18 from Matthew uh, verse, uh, chapter 16. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Jesus says that he's going to build his church on a rock. The point of a rock is that it's solid. It doesn't move. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he compares the foolish man and the wise man. The difference between them is the foolish man built his house on the sand, and the wise man built his house on the rock. So that when the storms came, as the storms are going to come, The wise man's house stood because it was built on a solid rock. It was built on a solid foundation. Whereas the foolish man's house was built on sand. And as the old children's song says, it went splat. Jesus is a wise man. He built his house well. He built it on a solid foundation so that it can withstand the storms. We see this throughout history. The first 400 years of Christianity, Christianity was an illegal religion. Christians were again and again persecuted for their faith. We see that already in the book of Acts, that Christians are put to death, tortured for their faith. But the persecution, and I just listened to a message today that they they arrested the leaders, they destroyed the Bibles, and... There was one other thing, but I I don't remember that. So no matter how many leaders they arrested, no matter how many Bibles they destroyed, the church was still able to thrive and grow in the midst of persecution. I can't remember if it's the 6th or 7th century, but the rise of Islam, Islam... Islam conquered most of North Africa and the Middle East, which used to be Christian lands. Yet today, when we look in Iran, of course, is a Muslim nation, yet the fastest growing church in the world is in Iran. The church, the church, Jesus Christ will build his church. And no matter what the storms, no matter what the waves, no matter what comes against them, Christ will overcome. Christ will have the victory. Communism has has risen to against Christianity, fascism, other kinds of tyrants. They'll, they have come, they have gone, they will rise up again if the Lord doesn't return, and they, they will be gone again. The church will stand through it all and will never fail because Jesus Christ is building his church. 
if we see that historically, then when we look out and we see all these evil philosophies that are present in our age, the things that, that we're wringing our hands worried about, how are we going to deal with, we can have hope and confidence that if, as Christ built his church in the midst of all these other problems, he's going to build his church in the problems that we have today. When we look at our contemporary age, when we see the actions that are, we can see things already happening to Christians who won't bow the knee to the idols of today. We need to remember that this has happened before and Christ has conquered, Christ has won, Christ will continue to conquer and Christ will continue to win. Our hope needs to be in Christ. There's no reason to despair or, or, or give up hope. Christ will be victorious because Christ is building his church and the foundation is solid. But not only that, the foundation is square. Now, those of you who are involved in building, don't laugh at me because I don't know much about it, okay? If you're involved in construction, uh, maybe I should have asked you before I did this. But So the next thing is that the foundation is square, and what I mean by that are the angles are correct and the lines are straight. Because if you have all the wrong angles and the foundation isn't built straight, your building is not going to stand for long. Or there will be problems that arise because of it. There will be cracks in the walls and things will fall apart. It may not do so immediately, but eventually... All of those problems are going to appear. The building that Jesus Christ is building isn't like that. The foundation is all the angles are right. Everything's straight just as it should be. Now, I get this because Jesus says here in verse 18, I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. As all of you probably know, uh, this 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 text is a source of great controversy. Some say that uh, Jesus, when he says to Peter that I'm going to build this rock, that he's referring to Peter. Others say he's Jesus is pointing to himself, saying, "I'm the rock upon which this church is going to be built." Still, others argue that Peter's confession of faith is the rock, so that. The church is built on a confession of faith. When we allow scripture to interpret scripture, we discover that the pop, that Jesus is referring to Peter, but as a representative of all the apostles. Ephesians 2.20 says, The household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. If you look in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 14, the foundation of the city of God, the church, the people of God, has the, 12, the names of the 12 apostles on it. Clearly, the foundation of the church of Christ consists of all the apostles. The Ephesian passage points out that Christ is also, I don't, I don't think it's the Ephesian passage, that's what I wrote, but I don't think it is. But the passage we read in first. Peter points out that Christ is part of the foundation as well. He is the cornerstone of the foundation. 
which ensures that the foundation is square, is straight. The, the cornerstone is, is how everything, if the cornerstone's wrong, everything else is going to be messed up. And so we understand what, what Jesus is tr- teaching us here is that it, it's the apostles as representatives of Christ, the only representatives of Christ that, Peter, that uh, Jesus left. These men are the foundation of the church. And we have their teaching today in the New Testament. So in other words, what we're saying is the Bible, the apostolic teaching, the deposit of truth that has been handed down to us from the, the beginning of the church until today, that deposit of truth is what keeps us on the right path. It, yes, it helps us with the enemies outside the church, but there's also enemies within the church who have, ta- who have attacked from the inside and subverted and undermined the gospel with their false teaching. But we needn't worry about that either because Christ has given us this apostolic teaching that's been handed down to us and we have it in our New Testament The Bible will guard Christ's people from error until he returns. The apostle teaching in the past has guarded the church from error time and time again. Early in church history, there were anti-Trinitarians, there were Christological errors, and there were false gospels promulgated from the very beginning. The word of God, the Bible, not just the New Testament, but the old as well, will guard the church, will keep us square and straight. We need to pay heed to the scriptures. We need to listen to the voice of God in them. So, one, re- one reason we have hope is because Christ is building his church. The second reason we have hope is is that the foundation that he has built upon is solid and square. Number three, the building consists of chosen stones. This building that Christ is building, we saw this in 1 Peter, is made up of individual believers who are brought into Christ's congregation through faith in Jesus Christ. It's Jesus... So Jesus is building his church, but one of the things we have to do, which Baptists, we usually distinguish between the universal church and the particular or local church. It's important to understand Jesus' point here because Jesus isn't claiming that every single local church that ever exists will not fail or will not close their doors. We know of churches that have closed their doors. We know of churches who have failed. Instead, what Jesus is promising is that the church as the redeemed of all ages, in other words, the elect, will never fail. That, the universal church, the Catholic church with the little c, will not fail. And we, so we need to understand that. But, 
the fact that it's made up of individual believers is important as well because it's all well and good that the church stands, but what about me? (laughs) What about you? One of the reasons the doctrine of election is important, one of the applications of it is that it gives us assurance that our salvation cannot be lost, that, that God is not going to fail to save his people. That does, now, some people take that and think that means, well, I, then I can live however, want and however I want, and God will save me in the end anyway. That's not a, that attitude is not the heart of someone who believes in Christ. It's not the heart of someone who has understood the depth of their sins and the, and the even deeper mercy and grace of God. If you understand the mercy and grace of God, you, would, you never want to say something like that. But election gives us assurance that God will accomplish our salvation. We will be saved, not just the church generally, but every, in, every true believer will be saved. Now, sometimes, in order to accomplish that, God's going to make us uncomfortable. He may make us hear a sermon that pricks our heart to the core and drives us to repentance. He may withdraw his presence to make you seek him more. He may read something something in his word that you never realized how sinful you were that causes you to turn back to God. God will accomplish your salvation. God will accomplish the salvation of every true believer. He will save them. We can be assured of that. Not just the church in general, but every true believer in particular. God will accomplish our salvation. So when we see, when when the culture starts affecting us, when it starts impacting our job, when it starts impacting our career, our individual lives, we can rest assured that Christ isn't just building this big building and only worried about the building itself, but he's concerned about us as individuals as well, and he will save us. He will, he will give us grace through all of those things so that in the end we will be saved. So finally, we see that the enemies of the church will not prevail. Look again at verse 18. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Christ assures us in this passage that no enemy of the church will ever be able to vanquish it. There's a couple ways of understanding what this passage is saying. Since hell, or the Greek word is Hades, is the realm of the dead, and gates are used to keep people in, some argue that this verse is suggesting that death will not defeat the church because she will rise at the last day. Others take this to mean that the church will defeat the devil and his kingdom by storming the gates of hell. 
Either way, we understand this. The point is the same. The enemies of the church, death and the devil, and, and the kingdom of the devil, the, the kingdom of this world, and all its temptations and all the things it tries to throw at the church, this, what is called in the Bible, Babylon, Babylon will not stand. That alternative temple that is supposed to rise to the heavens. We know in the book of Revelation that the Bible says there's an angel that comes out and cries out, Babylon has fallen, and fall it will. But the church will stand forever. Does it matter what the enemies of the church may bring against her? The church will be victorious through her Savior, Jesus Christ. And we in that can have hope that no matter what God's enemies throw at us, no matter what they try to do to us, Christ will conquer. If At the end of Lord of the Rings, the return of the king, if you haven't watched that, I'm sorry, but not really sorry. You should, you should watch it so you can understand my illustrations. <laughs> Actually, you should watch it so you enjoy it, and then you'll understand my illustrations too. But at the end of the movie, there had never been much hope that these little insignificant hobbits would be able to go into into Mordor and destroy the ring. There wasn't much hope it would happen. And they were getting close, and in order to provide a distraction, the good guys all went to to the black gate at the front of Mordor. And in the movie, not in the book, but in the movie, Aragorn... The king gave this speech. A day may come when the courage of men fails. When we forsake our friends and break all bonds of fellowship. But it is not this day. An hour of wolves and shattered shields when the age of men comes crashing down. But it is not this day. This day we fight. This speech was meant to rally the troops to fight a fight that was impossible. They, uh, given human circumstances, they were never going to win. But they had, Aragorn was giving them a little bit of hope. My hope is that this text, not my sermon, but this text where Jesus says, he will build your church, he will build his church, will be like that rallying cry for you when you see the darkness looming, when there's little hope left that success will happen. Make this text your rallying cry. Find hope in Christ, the builder of the church. Find hope in that the foundation is solid and square, that the building consists of chosen stones, And that he has promised that his enemy will not prevail. Brothers and sisters, Christ is our hope. And outside of him, there is no hope. We we must turn to him. Now, certainly there's more nuance about how do we engage our culture and things like that. How do we best do that? That's a question that we have to consider. But we can't consider that without the more fundamental question. 
Where is our hope coming from? In whom do we trust? Brothers and sisters, I urge you, trust in Christ because he will build his church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We pray that its truths will sink into our hearts, that you indeed will give us hope. We pray it in the name of Christ. Amen.